Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The 2009 Shulman Lectures, presented by Yale's Whitney Humanities Center, address the topic of Darwin and Darwinism and are part of a university-wide celebration of the 150th anniversary of On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection and the 200th anniversary of Darwin's birth. In this lecture, Bernard Lightman, professor of humanities at York University, speaks on how the Victorians learned about Darwin's theories, popularizing evolution. Several years after his aggressive defense of Charles Darwin's origin of species at the British Association for the Advancement of Science meeting at Oxford in 1860, uh, the biologist Thomas Henry Huxley delivered a set of weekly lectures on evolution. That began on November 10, 1862. And we now refer to these lectures as the Six Lectures to Working Men. After reading the first few lectures, Darwin wrote to Huxley on December 7, 1862, quote, they would do good and spread a taste for the natural sciences. Eleven days later, he reported to Huxley that he had read lectures four and five. Quote, they are simply perfect, he told Huxley. As he read the fifth lecture, Darwin thought, what is the good of my writing a thundering big book when everything is in this green little book so despicable for its size? In the name of all that is good and bad, I may as well shut shop altogether, of quote. Later that same month, on December 28th, Darwin wrote to Huxley that this little book was, quote, in every way excellent and cannot fail to do good the wider it is circulated. So Darwin got excited over this publication by Huxley, and he began to encourage Huxley to write more science books for a popular audience. In 1864, he urged Huxley to compose a popular treatise on zoology. Quote, with your ease in writing and with the knowledge at your fingertips, Darwin insisted, it would be simple, though it might seem like a waste of time for a high-powered researcher like Huxley to take on such a project, Darwin argued, that a striking treatise would do real service to science by educating naturalists. Huxley wrote on January 1st, 1865, that he found writing to be boring and time-consuming. And besides, he was far too busy. But Darwin wouldn't give up. Darwin was very persistent on this. He declared to Huxley in the next letter that Huxley was the one man who could write a popular treatise on zoology. And then he insisted on the importance of writing for the public. This is a key quote for what I'm going to talk to you about today. He wrote, I sometimes think that general and popular treatises are almost as important for the progress of science as original work, end of quote. But despite all of Darwin's pleading, Huxley refused to act on Darwin's suggestion. Now let's fast forward to 1888 and to a second telling vignette on Darwin and the popularization of evolution. This is almost 30 years after the publication of The Origin of Species in 1859, and it's six years after Darwin's death. In an article in the Cornhill magazine titled Evolution, Grant Allen, who was an important popularizer of science, complained that the British public was still confused as to the true meaning of evolution. Everybody, Allen declared, nowadays talks about evolution, like electricity, the cholera germ, women's rights, the great mining boom, and the Eastern question. It is in the air. It pervades society everywhere with its subtle essence. It infects small talk with its familiar catchwords and its slang phrases. Everybody believes he knows all about it, 
and discuss it as glibly in his everyday conversation as he discusses the points of racehorses he has never seen. Quote, Allen then outlined the popular conception of evolution. Invented by Darwin, it involved the ideas that most things growed and that humans are descended from men with tails. Allen referred to this, quote, drawing room view of the evolutionist theory as a popular fallacy of the wildest description, and he termed it a pure parody of the evolutionist's opinion. So here we have two vignettes testifying to the difficulties that Darwin encountered when he tried to manage the popularization of his concept of evolution. In the extraordinary exchange between Huxley and Darwin, we see how Darwin had problems trying to enlist the help of his friends to disseminate evolutionary theory to the public. In Allen's article, we see the results. Though evolution pervaded British culture, the general public held to a distorted and simplified conception of it. Studies of Darwin's letters have revealed that he was quite effective in building a vast correspondence network that could be used to push his evolutionary ideas forward among scientists. Egged on by Darwin, Huxley had publicly defended his origin of species against the attacks of critical scientists, hostile Christian leaders, and other members of the intellectual elite. This is how Huxley earned his nickname, Darwin's Bulldog. But Darwin also wanted Huxley and other correspondents to help him disseminate his evolutionary message to the masses. A careful observer of nature, Darwin was also astute when it came to understanding how scientific theories became accepted. Darwin realized, and we should take our cue from him, that popularizations of evolution were important. He believed that the ultimate success of his theory of evolution by natural selection depended on its acceptance by the Victorian popular audience and not just scientists. Moreover, Darwin recognized that he could not popularize his theories on his own. Since the middle of the century, scores of self-educated science writers have been churning out books on science to a rapidly growing audience. Popularizing science was becoming big business. But many of these popularizers of science were not especially sympathetic to Darwin's evolutionary naturalism, and the popularizers who accepted evolution were not necessarily enamored with Darwin's particular version of it. So today I want to explore with you how evolutionary theory was popularized in Britain and the United States from 1860 to 1900. I'm only going to deal with those popularizers who accepted evolution as valid and who took it upon themselves to write books explaining the scientific basis of the theory and its larger intellectual implications. As they saw it, I will focus on popularizers who were among Darwin's correspondents and on best-selling popularizations of evolution. It is from these books written by these popularizers that many Victorians learned about the meaning of evolution and not just from Darwin alone. Previous studies on the reception or dissemination of evolutionary theory in Britain and the United States have dealt primarily with members of the intellectual elite, with the views of scientists, clergymen, or other members of the intelligentsia. Instead of limiting ourselves to a consideration of the positions adopted by these people, we must also investigate the world of the literary hack that many publishers relied upon to write best-selling books usually self-educated rather than trained scientists, these men and women knew how to write for a popular audience. In a period 
when scientists were still struggling to wrest cultural authority away from Christian clergymen, the views of the scientific writer were granted considerable weight by the reading public. Darwin must have been constantly disappointed by the way prominent popularizers, even the friends that he encouraged to write about evolutionary themes, presented his theory. Evolution was rarely popularized in ways that reflected Darwin's major contribution to biology, his theory of natural selection. This meant that the reading audience, more often than not, encountered an alternative to Darwin's naturalistic and non-directional evolutionary perspective. There were at least four different versions of evolution circulating in the period from 1860 to 1900, and only one conformed to Darwin's version. I will begin by discussing Darwin and the Darwinians and their secular and non-theological interpretations of evolution, and then I'm going to go and discuss the three other versions of evolution, moving from the most secular to the most Christian. So let me start with the first group. Darwin and the Darwinians. Charles Darwin himself has to be considered one of the most important popularizers who attempted to convey evolutionary theory to the general reading audience. His correspondence with friends and with John Murray, his publisher, while he worked on the Originist thesis is quite revealing. At first, while writing The Origin, he was very optimistic that the book would appeal to the public. On March 31st, 1859, he wrote to John Murray, quote, the book ought to be popular with a large body of scientific and semi-scientific readers as it bears on agriculture and history of our domestic productions and on a whole field, uh, fields of zoology, botany, and geology. He added, only some small portions are at all abstruse. Several days later, on April 5th, he told Murray that his book would attract the public in addition to scientific and semi-scientific readers. Quote, it may be conceit, he wrote, but I believe the subject will interest the public and I am sure that the views are original. Quote, ability to communicate effectively to non-scientists. He apologized to Murray on June 4th, 1859 for the very heavy corrections he had made to the proofs. He was finding incredibly bad and most difficult to make clear and smooth, end of quote. To Joseph Dalton Hooker, a good friend of his who was a botanist, he complained in a letter dated June 22, 1859, that he had had to, quote, blacken the proofs. So miserable have I found the style, end of quote. Darwin said, I begin to fear that the public will find it intolerably dry and perplexing, quote. The revision of the proofs was such a burden to Darwin that the origin became a loathsome thing that he yearned to finish. Near the end on September 23, 1859, he remarked to W.D. Fox, quote, so much for my abominable volume, which has cost me so much labor that I almost hate it, quote. Darwin found that it was not as easy as he had thought to write a book that aimed to persuade scientists of the validity of his evolutionary theory while remaining accessible to the general public. If we compare Darwin to John George Wood, one of the most successful popularizers of science in the second half of the 19th century, then the problems with Darwin's attempt to reach multiple audiences become clear. Wood's only target audience was the general reader, and he was quite effective in reaching this audience. There was a good reason for that. 
Wood was one of the first professional science writers. Today we take for granted the existence of the professional science writer as we encounter their handiwork almost on a daily basis in popular science magazines like Scientific American, in columns devoted to science in our daily newspapers, or in the latest popular book on string theory or evolutionary theory. But before the middle of the 19th century, there were few science writers because there was little demand for popular science books and journals. In fact, it is only in the 19th century that popular science is really created for the first time. Experiments in the publication of popular science books began only in the early 19th century, and many of them were commercial failures. The market just did not exist for such works until later in the century, when rising literacy rates created a new polity of readers composed of members of the middle class and the wealthier working class. The development of new printing technologies based on steam, creating the possibility of cheap mass-produced books, combined with the expansion of the British reading audience, led to the demand for professional science writers such as Wood, who could make a living, albeit a meager one, by churning out popular science books and articles. During his career as popularizer of science, Wood wrote over two dozen natural history books. The productivity of some of these people is just staggering. The majority of them with George Rutledge's publishing house, and he lectured extensively throughout England. An Oxford man, Wood was initially bound for the Anglican ministry, but the success of the volumes that he wrote for Rutledge's Common Object series led him to forge a career writing natural history books. The first, which was titled Common Objects of the Seashore, published in 1857, sold so well that Rutledge could hardly keep up with the demand. By 1860, over 77,000 copies had been printed. A cartoon in Punch poked fun at his book and those who read it by depicting them as if they were the common objects of the seashore when they combed beaches for marine flora and fauna. The sales of common objects of the seashore were impressive by the standards of the period. But Wood's Common Objects of the Country, published in 1858, just a year before The Origin appeared, was even more successful. And a comparison of the two books indicates the limitations of Darwin's origin as a work of popularization. When it first went on sale, the retail price of the origin was 15 shillings, far too expensive for members of the working class. Wood's Common Objects of the Country was priced at an affordable one shilling. In Britain, by the end of the century, 56,000 copies of the origin had been printed. At least half a dozen science books for a general reading audience surpassed it. One of them was Wood's Common Objects of the Country. By 1889, 86,000 copies of Wood's book had been printed, so that's 30,000 more copies than the origin in 1899. In 1890, one journalist who was writing for the Saturday Review declared that John George Wood had, quote, a thousand readers where Darwin had but one. I think he's actually exaggerating a bit, but uh, it gives you an idea of how uh, impressive the sales were of Wood's books. If we compare the contents of the origin to Wood's common objects of the country, it becomes clear what conventions Darwin adopted to reach a popular audience and what features of his book were difficult for that audience to digest. Like Wood, Darwin tried to make his work accessible to the intelligent reader by avoiding excessive use of scientific terminology known only to practitioners. Non-specialists could follow Darwin's move in the opening chapters of The Origin 
from the breeding of domesticated animals and plants to the operation of selection in nature. Darwin also depicted nature as a place of wonder, full of intricate contrivances. And though he did not, like Wood, ascribe these contrivances to the direct action of a caring God, he retained the natural theologian's emphasis on the effective impact of studying the natural world. For Darwin, as for Wood, the proper emotional response to nature was a sense of awe. Although Darwin wished to appeal to a popular audience, he also desired to distinguish his book from the popularizing tradition represented by Wood, as well as the hack journalism associated with the controversial and anonymous vestiges of the natural history of creation, published in 1884, a popularization of evolution by the publisher and journalist Robert Chambers. It was published anonymously at first, so nobody knew who he was at the beginning. Many scientists, including Huxley, had savagely critiqued the vestiges, and Darwin therefore tried to appeal to his scientific colleagues. Whereas the vestiges indulged in speculations about cosmic progression, Darwin's origin contained a sustained argument for evolution by natural selection for scientists that required the presentation of masses of evidence that even Darwin recognized would have been tedious for a general audience. Only the final sentence of the origin after natural selection had been argued for and digested allowed readers to speculate about cosmic progression. Though Darwin experimented with the use of visual images in his subsequent books, the origin contained a single illustration that served a utilitarian purpose. In comparison, Wood's books were filled with vivid visual images. Their inclusion was a hallmark of his work, and he put quite a lot of time and effort, as did the presses that he worked with, in getting the best illustrators and getting many pictures, some color, put into his books. He thought that would be more attractive to the popular audience, and he was right. Darwin attempted in the origin to secularize nature. He repeatedly pointed to the destruction and death underlying the deceptively harmonious natural world that we behold, the face of nature bright with gladness, as he called it. By contrast, Wood was a natural theologian. The overwhelming majority of popularizers of science in the second half of the 19th century saw themselves as working in the natural theology tradition. Wood emphasized that destruction had a purpose, and that nature was really a happy world, a scene of divine activity, where every creature had its role to play. Darwin's book could have only a limited appeal for reading audiences thrilled by the vestiges and accustomed to the conventions used by popularizers of science like Wood. The origin, in effect, was a hybrid text designed to appeal to several audiences who were much more difficult to reach simultaneously in the second half of the 19th century. Unsure of his ability to communicate with the Victorian reading audience and in competition with experienced scientific authors like Wood to gain the ear of the public, Darwin sought allies in his attempt to popularize his theory of evolution by natural selection. He looked first, quite naturally, to British scientists like Huxley, who had defended him publicly against the attacks of hostile Christian clergymen and their scientific supporters. The popularizing Darwinians included the biologist Huxley, other biologists like George John Romanus and E. Ray Lancaster, the physicist John Tyndall, the botanist Joseph Dalton Hooker, the anthropologist and entomologist John Lubbock, and the mathematician William Kingdon Clifford. The Darwinians conveyed evolutionary theory to non-scientists through their contributions to the periodical press. In the occasional book, 
in public lectures in venues such as the British Association for the Advancement of Science. But Huxley and other Darwinians weren't always receptive to the idea of dropping their research and devoting precious time to writing books for a popular audience. Initially, they did not share Darwin's belief that it was important to popularize evolutionary theory. Before 1870, the main priorities for the Darwinians were converting the rest of the scientific community to evolutionary theory and to gain control of the scientific institutions. Many of the Darwinians had close personal ties to Darwin. They shared Darwin's naturalism and his concept of a non-directional evolution. And this is the group that scholars have often concentrated on in the past when discussing how Victorians learned about Darwin's ideas. But they were only one group among many, and the books they wrote on evolution weren't among the bestsellers of the period. Robert Chambers, the anonymous author of The Vestiges of the Natural History of Creation, packaged evolutionary theory in a monad-to-human-style cosmic narrative. A sensational bestseller, the book sold 21,250 copies in Britain within a decade of publication. But the vestiges continued to sell well into the 19th century, despite a concerted effort by men of science to demolish its scientific credibility. After the origin had appeared, another 17,500 copies were sold, so that by 1890 it reached the 38,750 copies mark. Why did the British reading public audience persist in buying vestiges when, since 1859, they could have had Darwin's Origin of Species, or later on, popularizations of evolution written by eminent scientific authorities like Huxley or Romanus? Darwinians faced stiff competition in the marketplace of science, not only from chambers, but also from a group of popularizers who shared much in common with the author of the vestiges. Like Chambers, they emphasized the progressive nature of the evolutionary process, and many of them depicted evolution in a cosmic form. The naturalistic, non-directional evolutionary theory promulgated by Darwin and the Darwinians may not have appealed as powerfully to the imagination of the reading public. The lack of a clear consensus among scientists by the end of the century as to the validity of Darwin's theory of natural selection and the attraction of some scientists to Lamarckianism as a viable alternative gave popularizers license to explore the larger meaning of a non-Darwinian form of evolution. The historian of biology, Peter Bowler, has persuasively argued that evolution became associated with the unfolding of a goal-directed plan or pattern. Within biology, quote, this is Bowler, the origin was hijacked by the prevailing enthusiasm for a progressive and purposeful developmental trend in nature, end of quote. Whereas the Darwinians looked to Darwin, this second cluster of evolutionary popularizers can be grouped around two figures, the synthetic philosopher Herbert Spencer and the French evolutionist Lamarck, whose writing was mainly from the early 19th century. Since Spencer has been viewed as a neo-Lamarckian, the popularizers to be discussed in this section can actually be treated as a group, can be treated together. Scientific practitioners dominated the Darwinians, but the ranks of the Spencerians and neo-Lamarckians contained numerous journalists, philosophers, and scientific writers. It was one of the largest groups of popularizers of evolution in terms of size, and it was influential because of its numbers. The novelist Samuel Butler and the popularizer of science Alice Boddington can be counted among the neo-Lamarckians, while the more numerous Spencerian popularizers, 
included Grant Allen, Edward Claude, Richard Proctor, John Fisk, and Samuel Lang. So I'm only going to have time to concentrate on two of these interesting figures, uh, Grant Allen and John Fisk. Both of them were correspondents of Darwin's, but as Spencerians, both popularized evolution as a cosmic progressive process that embraced all aspects of the natural and human worlds. Though Darwin encouraged Allen's figure, his career as a popularizer, it was Spencer that he really idolized. In 1874, while still in Jamaica teaching at Queen's College, Allen sent Spencer a letter expressing his appreciation, quote, for the personal assistance you have rendered me in interpreting the phenomena of the universe, end of quote. Allen enclosed an ode to Spencer's greatness titled To Herbert Spencer, which described the synthetic philosopher as, quote, the deepest and mightiest of our later seers who had read the universal plan, end of quote. So Allen sent him a poem. And the poem was really a tribute to Spencer as a system builder who, using the blocks supplied by lesser builders, quote, and this is a line from the poem. It's very bad poetry, so you, you may cringe. Rears high a stately fame, a grand harmonious whole. Despite his friendship with Darwin, Allen sometimes put Darwin into the category of lesser builder. In his 1888 article on evolution, Allen wanted to correct the erroneous conception of Darwin as a sole founder of evolutionary theory, and he wanted to counter the tendency among members of the public to conflate Darwin with Spencer. Darwin was only one of those workers, but to Allen, Spencer's role as grand architect of the evolutionary structure was special. Quote, it is a strange proof of how little people know about their own ideas, Allen wrote in his conclusion of the article, that among the thousands who talk glibly every day of evolution, not 10% are probably aware that both word and conception are alike due to the commanding intelligence and vast generalizing power of Herbert Spencer. But Allen's books were not particularly uh, bestsellers. Uh, John Fisk, on the other hand, one of Spencer's American disciples, had greater success. Fisk's Outlines of Cosmic Philosophy, which was published in 1874, reached a 19th edition by 1899. Fisk acknowledged that the system he was expanding in his book was essentially Spencer's, and that the illustrations are, quote, quite in harmony with the fundamental principles which Spencer has laid down, end of quote. Darwin and Fisk had a correspondence, and, and Darwin actually encouraged Fisk's ability to make Spencer's ideas clear to a general audience. On December 8, 1874, he wrote to Fisk, quote, I never in my life read so lucid an exposition, and therefore thinker as you are, end of quote. Fisk's most successful popularization of evolution appeared in 1884, his destiny of man viewed in light of his origin, which went on sale for $1. By 1899, 26,000 copies have been sold. Fisk painstakingly demonstrated that the negative implications read into Darwinism were groundless. Materialism, Fisk reassured his readers, was, quote, utterly condemned by modern science, end of quote. Instead of degrading humanity or putting humans on the same level of animals as animals, quote, the Darwinian theory shows us distinctly for the first time how the creation and the perfecting of man is the goal towards which nature's work as all the while intending, end of quote. With the appearance of humanity, a new era began in the history of the universe, according to Fisk, as the evolution of the mind rather than the body became paramount. Natural selection confined itself to cyclical variations, and the results were the development of human morality, the genesis of the family, and the emergence of altruism. 
Fisk was confident that strife would be entirely eliminated, though gradually. Fisk ended his book with praise for, quote, the greatest philosopher of modern times, the master and teacher of all, who shall study the process of evolution, Herbert Spencer. The Spencerians and Lamarckians were joined by another group of popularizers who also promulgated a theory of evolution shot through with teleological elements. Instead of looking to Darwin, to Spencer, or to Lamarck, these writers were inspired by spiritualism or by a religious sensibility that was not distinctly Christian. In some ways, their attraction to a theistical interpretation of evolution resembled the Spencerians, since Spencer had affirmed the existence of a shadowy deity, which he referred to as the unknowable with a capital U. The Spencerians tended to be religiously tinged agnostics. However, the spiritualists and religious evolutionists were theists, not agnostics. The evolutionary spiritualists included one of Darwin's close friends, the biologist Alfred Russell Wallace, while the journalist Benjamin Kidd was a religious evolutionist. So I'm going to deal mostly with Kidd and Wallace, starting with Wallace. Wallace was one of those who stayed on good terms with Darwin, even after the two began to diverge in their views on evolution. And we all know Wallace is the co-discoverer of the theory of natural selection. It was his letter in 1858 to Darwin outlining a theory of evolution similar to the one that Darwin had been working on that forced Darwin to write what was to become the origin of species. Accepted into the Darwin circle, Wallace disappointed his friends when in 1867 he became a fully committed spiritualist. Wallace believed that spiritualism was a legitimate field for scientific investigation. Huxley and Tyndall detested spiritualism, regarding it as diametrically opposed to the principles of science and an utter sham. Wallace regarded spiritualism and natural selection as complementary components of a larger evolutionary teleology with theistic overtones. In his book, Darwinism, published in 1889, which was written for a popular audience, Wallace argued that a reason for the entire evolutionary process could only be found if it were put in a spiritualistic framework. Quote, to us, Wallace declared, the whole purpose, the only raison d'etre of the world with all its complexities of physical structure, the slow evolution of the vegetable and animal kingdoms, and the ultimate appearance of man was the development of the human spirit in association with the human body, end quote. In this book, Wallace manages to co-opt the theory of natural selection for the spiritualist cause. Published by Macmillan, Darwinism reached a second edition in 1889 and went through four reprints before a third edition appeared in 1901. That's a, those are fairly modest uh, sales, um, but they were, and they were surpassed by a publication of a book in January 1894 titled Social Evolution by this fellow, Benjamin Kidd. Kidd, before he published this book, was a virtually unknown government clerk who had written a series of natural history essays. Kidd's book ranks with The Origin of Species and Chambers' Vestiges as one of the best-selling popularizations of evolution. According to an article in the Periodical Review of Reviews in May of 1895, in the first 15 months alone of its existence, sales of the book, quote, must have amounted to between 40,000 and 50,000, a degree of popularity which not more than half a dozen of the best novels attain in the course of a year, end of quote. Social evolution became an international bestseller, the book was translated into at least 10 languages, including Arabic and Chinese. Kidd maintained that evolution had a definite trajectory, leading towards a concrete goal that was religious in nature. 
he claimed that nobody, the scientists included, really understood that this was the true meaning of the evolutionary process. Even Herbert Spencer, in his opinion, had failed. Kidd agreed with Spencer that human progress was a natural phenomenon under the control of natural laws. He also accepted the notion that progress was the outcome of the natural selection process, which inevitably involved competition. But he disagreed with Spencer's notion that the evolutionary process was rational. To the contrary, it was profoundly irrational, as it demanded the extermination of those who lost the struggle for existence. From the point of view of the impoverished masses, it was more rational to abolish competition and adopt socialist principles, even if that destroyed the prospects of further progress. This was the hidden message of evolutionary science, according to Kidd. The interests of the social organism and those of the majority of individuals comprising it were actually antagonistic. At this point, Kidd brought in the theme of religion. There could be no rational religion, Kidd believed, but religion could provide a super-rational sanction for the individual to support the progress of the organism. Those races in which, quote, religious character, end of quote, had been most fully developed had secured a subordination of the present interests of the individual to the larger interests of the longer-lived social organism. And this, Kidd stated, allowed the fullest possible development of the power and faculties of all individuals. Darwinian science, Kidd affirmed, therefore led to the following conclusion, quote, the evolution which is slowly proceeding in human society is not primarily intellectual, but religious in character, end of quote. This was the systematic development underlying the apparent confusion of history. Both the Marxists and the Spencerians did not understand the role of religion, quote, in the spirit of evolutionary science, end of quote. Their anti-Christian bias had blinded them to the fact that, quote, religion has a definite function to perform in society and that it is a factor of some kind in the social evolution which is in progress. In 1894, the Scottish evangelical Henry Drummond delivered the Lowell Lectures in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm going to use Drummond now as an example of Christian evolutionism. They were published with the title The Ascent of Man in 1894. Drummond maintained that the nature of evolution had been misconceived by all contemporary scientific thinkers. So in, in that sense, he, he, uh, he's echoing Kidd. Quote, evolution was given to the modern world out of focus, he declared was first seen by it out of focus and has remained out of focus to the present hour, end of quote. The general basis of evolution, he argued, had not been re-examined since the time of Darwin by the speculative sciences, such as teleology, or by the working sciences like sociology. All the sciences had been, quote, led astray by a fundamental omission, end of quote, and Drummond aimed to correct the oversight by presenting a reconstruction of modern thought based on the notion that evolution was God's method in creation. Drummond was just one of a large group of American and British popularizers who argued that the best way to make sense of the meaning of evolution was to put it into a Christian context. On the British side, representatives of this school include liberal Anglican Charles Kingsley, botanist George Henslow, and Drummond. Examples of American members include Asa Gray, professor of natural history at Harvard, the liberal evangelicals, Henry Ward Beecher and Lyman Abbott, the Unitarian, Mino Judson Savage, and the Congregationalist, Joseph Cook. Now, I'm going to focus on Kingsley, who was a correspondence, uh, of, uh, in correspondence with Darwin, a good friend of Darwin's, and on Drummond, 
who wrote the best-selling popularization of evolution during this period. Kingsley was a Christian socialist, a novelist, and a liberal Anglican cleric, and he was an early convert to evolution, responding enthusiastically to a pre-publication copy of The Origin of Species. In the early 1860s, he established friendships with some of Darwin's leading supporters, including Charles Lyell, Joseph Hooker, and Huxley. Though Huxley may have thought in 1860 that Kingsley was, quote, this is Huxley, an excellent Darwinian, quote, Kingsley was actually working on the question of how to adapt evolution for inclusion in a reformulated natural theology. The naturalistic and dysteleological dimensions of Darwin's evolutionary theory were to be eliminated. The fruits of his work appeared in his essay, The Natural Theology of the Future, published in 1871, where he argued that evolution was simply the divine means through which God worked. Though natural theology needed to be reformulated, he denied that evolution interfered with the central ideas of a designer, contrivance, and adaptation. When Kingsley wrote his evolutionary fairy tale for children in 1863, he was still working out the reformulation of natural theology that he later articulated in the natural theology of the future. In Water Babies, Tom, a young chimney sweep, is turned into a water baby so that he can restart his evolutionary development and reach the pinnacle of the process, becoming a morally upright Christian Englishman. His success is not predetermined. It is contingent on the moral choices he makes. For Kingsley, the lesson to be learned from Tom's story was the religious and moral nature of the evolutionary process. Kingsley's Water Babies was widely read. We tend to take look at children's literature and think that it's not really important, but Water Babies was. Published by Macmillan, it reached an 18th edition by 1899. Though regarded as a children's book, the importance of Water Babies should not be, over, uh, should not be underestimated. An entire generation of children were taught to understand evolution within a Christian context rather than fear it as the harbinger of materialism. In the process of reading Water Babies to their children, adults absorbed and transmitted Kingsley's views on evolution and religion. The first to recognize that children, children's books could provide a means for popularizing a sanitized version of evolution, Kingsley inspired other authors, such as Arabella Buckley, Charles Lyell's secretary and a close confidant of Darwin's, and Wendell Phillips Garrison, son of the American abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, and one of Darwin's correspondents, uh, to write books on Darwin and evolution for children. So I can't go into too much detail on these figures, but I particularly uh, uh, enjoy uh, talking a bit about Wendell Phillips Garrison, who uh, published a book uh, called What Darwin Saw. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's basically um, Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle. Uh, and uh, you get uh, a very different picture of Darwin coming out of this book. Um, what, what Garrison basically did is he took uh, the journal, um, extracted bits and pieces of it, and reorganized it uh, into themes. Um, so he might have you know, all the parts in the, in the journal of the Beagle having to do with, uh, with um, sea creatures, uh, and all of them having to do with mammals. And so what he did is rearranged the journal of the Beagle into a traditional natural history book, um, which made it perfectly safe for children because he didn't have to get into any of the evolutionary theories. And in the book, he actually has a preface for children uh, and a preface for parents on how to read the book. Um, and uh, in the, the preface to uh, adults, he, he 
basically reassures them and says, Darwin wasn't really this terrible, atheistical, immoral person that some people make him out to be. Uh, and if you look at some of the passages in this book, you'll see that there's a moral dimension to, to Darwin's uh, thinking. Now, neither Buckley nor Garrison were Christian evolutionists, uh, but they are, also were not Darwinians. Henry Drummond, who was a Christian evolutionist, came out of the Evangelical Scottish Free Church. From April 1874 to July 1875, he traveled through Ireland and England with the American evangelists Dwight L. Moody and Ira Sankey, speaking and editing Moody's addresses. In 1882, he again helped Moody during a second evangelist tour of Britain. In 1884, he was appointed to professorship in theology at the Free Church College in Glasgow, a status that required ordination. Drummond wrote two popularizations of evolution. The first, Natural Law in the Spiritual World, published in 1883, which sold more than 120,000 copies by 1900. That's a staggering number, 120,000 copies. And the Lowell Lectures on the Ascent of Man, 1894, which by 1902 had sold 30,000 copies. The first book alone gives Drummond the record for the highest sales among all popularizers of evolution, the origin of species included. In the preface to his Ascent of Man, Drummond made it clear that he was addressing the general reader. Quote, beyond an attempted readjustment of the accents, there's nothing here for the specialist, Drummond wrote, except it may be the reflection of his own work, end quote. The title of the work, of course, was a parody on Darwin's Descent of Man. It signaled Drummond's intention of turning Darwin's evolutionary theory upside down. Instead of supporting a secular, non-theological perspective in which humanity was brought down to the level of the animal, Drummond's evolutionary theory would demonstrate the divinity of humanity by pointing to the purpose of nature and linking it to the creative hand of a Christian God. The true meaning of evolution had been obscured by Darwin's emphasis on the struggle for life as the governing factor in development. Even Kidd, who Drummond referred to as a brilliant writer, had been blinded by the Darwinian stress on struggle and as a result, could not perceive a rational sanction for morality. Instead, Drummond asserted that a moral process lay at the heart of evolution within nature. Evolution was actually based on love rather than conflict. All reproduction involved a form of altruism, which found its main expression in, quote, the endless and infinite self-sacrifices of maternity, end of quote. So reproduction is a risk, um, and yet, um, uh, that risk is taken over and over again uh, in the evolutionary process. The crowning work of evolution was the creation of maternal love in the mammalia, after which evolution tamed, domesticated, and morally disciplined fathers. I like that part where it's the mothers are the ones first who you know, are, are on the, the crest of the evolutionary process. It takes a little while longer for fathers to become domesticated. Evolution, which revealed the workings of an imminent God, involves spiritual, not material progress. Uh, and after uh, the, the tremendous sales of the book, Herbert Spencer uh, was infuriated uh, by Drummond's book because it was the first by a Christian evolutionist to provide a rival vision that so successfully co-opted his form of cosmic evolution. So um, where does this all leave us? Perhaps if Darwin had been alive when Drummond's books were published, he too would have been exasperated. But he was alive when a popularizer who presented a very different version of evolution in contrast to Drummond's wrote a book that made him quite uncomfortable. 
In his The Student's Darwin, published in 1881, Edward Aveling analyzed and epitomized Darwin's published works one by one while demonstrating that Darwin's theories led logically to the acceptance of atheism. Aveling was Karl Marx's son-in-law, and at one time he was closely tied to the notorious secularist Charles Bradlaugh and Annie Besant. Aveling argued that though Darwin's work on climbing plants provided striking examples of the beautiful adaptations encountered in nature, Darwin, he claimed, never talked of design or used the word God. The wonderful adaptations of structure in the orchid were, quote, not the result of special creative acts, end of quote, but rather of gradual evolution. Aveling dismissed the doctrine of special creation as a relic of the past and claimed that every new discovery was strengthening the theory of evolution. Aveling acknowledged at one point in the book that, quote, here and there I'm aware that I've pushed some of Darwin's conclusions further than perhaps he himself would be willing to believe they go, end quote. But, he rationalized, since science was antagonistic with the belief in the supernatural, Aveling thought it was, quote, legitimate to take the teachings of our greatest and push them to what seems to me to be their logical conclusion, end of quote. Aveling later sent Darwin a copy of his book with a note apologizing for his atheistic extrapolations. When Darwin replied, he acknowledged that he could hardly stop writers from taking his views to a greater length than seemed to him safe. Darwin wished to distance himself both publicly and privately from a notorious atheist like Aveling. Later, after Darwin's death, Aveling wrote another popularization of evolution titled The Darwinian Theory, 1884. Here, it was Aveling who publicly distanced himself from Darwin. The true evolutionist, Aveling said, did not believe in the intervention of the supernatural, nor did the consistent evolutionist recognize any hiatus between the living and the non-living. Consequently, Aveling could not, quote, as strange as this may seem, call Charles Darwin an evolutionist, end of quote. So here's a fifth interpretation of evolution, more radical than that of Darwin, the Darwinians, and it pushed Darwin to the margins of evolutionary science. Darwin was not an evolutionist. In the last 25 years, historians of Victorian science have produced a picture of the period that has also moved Darwin away from the center of things. It was an age in which the eclipse of Darwinism took place, or rather, as Peter Bowler has argued, there was no eclipse of Darwinism in the late 19th century because Darwinism in the modern sense of that term had never been very popular. Though two of the finest biographies of Darwin have been produced since Bowler made that comment, Historians have become interested in working-class science, in the scientific work of neglected women, and the continuing power of the aristocracy in the world of science. Looking at the popularizers of evolution has contributed to this decentering of Victorian science. Needless to say, these developments in the history of Victorian science place scholars like me in an awkward position as we celebrate the 200th anniversary of the birth of Darwin and the 150th anniversary of the publication of The Origin of Species. In 2009, my colleagues and I are in the uncomfortable position of playing the role of wet blanket, of party poopers. As when we were asked to help celebrate these anniversaries, the story we tell about science and Darwin's age seems to push him to the sidelines. But it can't be denied that a cadre of popularizers who had a different agenda from Darwin and his allies, in effect, displaced Darwin from his privileged position as the central public figure in the development of evolutionary theory, at least during the 40 years following the publication of The Origin. Reading Darwin's vast correspondence reveals how he actively tried to persuade members of the scientific elite 
to accept and support his evolutionary theory. Like a spider sitting at the center of a gigantic web that constituted his correspondence network, Darwin attempted to control the fate of the theory of natural selection. Darwin made use of the same network to manage the public impact of his work. It is striking how many popularizers of science, and particularly popularizers of evolution, were in contact with Darwin, and how many were encouraged by him in their efforts to disseminate Darwin's ideas to the rapidly growing reading audience of the second half of the century. Darwin was in touch with Allen, Aveling, Buckley, Fisk, Gray, Henslow, Huxley, Kingsley, and Romanus. Nevertheless, he was unable to control how his theories were popularized by these figures and in the broader culture. What did the American and British reading audience make of this fluid situation, where a number of competing interpretations of evolution flourished in popularizations? How did they decide what Darwinism entailed when Gray, a Christian evolutionist, considered himself to be a Darwinian, when Wallace, co-discoverer of the theory of natural selection, was an adherent to spiritualist evolution, and when Aveling was claiming that Darwin wasn't an evolutionist at all. If sales are any indication, the Anglo-American audience was gripped more by accounts of the evolutionary process, emphasizing its progressive nature, its larger purpose, and its religious meaning than by the popularizations presented by the Darwinians. In the world of Victorian publishing and the vast reading audience that it catered to, Darwin was just one author among many competing for their attention and patronage. This lecture was presented in the spring of 2009 as part of the distinguished Schulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities. These lectures were established to honor Robert Schulman, Sterling Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, for his unwavering support for the integration of science and the humanities. Professor Lightman spoke on April 1, 2009 at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center.